0: The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. It's wonderful to be with everyone once again this evening. Worship has been so encouraging and edifying. I hope that that continues through this lesson. You know, if someone asked me to to describe myself to them between the three options of optimist, pessimist, and realist, i probably put myself in the middle, in the realist category. And a lot of times, people who are realists kind of to lean toward pessimism, and, and I think that that's kind of just a product of reality. If you're a realist, you understand that there's a lot of negative in the world. And so that's something that I constantly find myself struggling with, even in little mundane things. I try not to get my hopes up too much, and and um, I find myself being pessimistic from time to time. As Christians, we've got to beware of that. Uh, the Christian is supposed to be an optimist. And it's not, you know, being naive about life. Don't get me wrong. We've got to understand that not everything is going to work out, that things happen, um, that we live in an imperfect world. But when we really step back and look at the big picture, Christians are called to optimism. And it's not a feigned optimism. It's not a, a fake optimism, if you will. It's, it's an optimism that is very real um, and is, is sturdy and is certainly something that is not foolish because God is behind that optimism. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, Solomon noted that God made man upright. That in and of itself, our origin, should engender optimism in our life when especially we as Christians realize and subscribe to this belief that we did indeed come from God. But Solomon also noted that even though God man-made upright, they have sought out many schemes. And that's the reason really for pessimism. Even those who don't believe in God, who could rightly be described as pessimists for whatever reason, they just view everything through the negative and never have any kind of positive hopes about anything, That negativity comes from the reality of sin in the world. Everything bad, everything evil, everything negative ultimately comes from the fact that man has rebelled against God, continues to rebel against God, and there's much evil and suffering and so on and so forth in the world. But the Christian who follows the one who created him understands that in the almighty power of God is reason for optimism, And we've got to work on that. We've got to view, especially as we focus this evening, all of our spiritual endeavors through that lens of positivity. And this is not any kind of, you know, soft, go along to get along, you know, nothing's going to be difficult kind of lesson. And really nothing about Christianity is that way. But even through the bad, even through the hardships is reason for optimism. And the reason we've got to work on this and make sure we're maintaining that optimistic perspective is because God's people have struggled with that throughout all ages. And we especially see that in the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites as they exited Egypt. They came to the point of the Red Sea where they had mountains on their sides and they had the Egyptians closing in and they had the Red Sea in front of them. And they cried out in agony and in sorrow and in worry and anxiety about how they had been taken out of Egypt only to die in the wilderness and it would have been far better to just stay in Egypt than to die out there, especially by the hands of the Egyptians. They were looking at their situation through a very pessimistic lens, even though all that had been promised by God that the great nation would come through Abraham's lineage had actually come about. They had all of the plagues in Egypt to exhibit God's power and he was on their side, yet pessimism reigned. Then they progressed through the wilderness in Numbers 13 and 14 to Kadesh Barnea where God sent 12 spies into the Canaan land to see the people and to see the land flowing with milk and honey. And they saw mighty and vicious warriors, the Nephilim. And they saw those people and only... Two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, came back with a positive report. The rest were pessimistic about the endeavor to go into that land and take it for themselves. They said the people are too great. We can't do this. They were pessimistic regardless of what God had shown them with his power. And this is what God views pessimism as. In Numbers 14 and verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Really, pessimism in the life of a Christian is a form of faithlessness. When we begin to view our spiritual endeavors, especially through the lens of pessimism, our faith begins to waver and wane. We're given a very encouraging verse in Romans 8 and verse 31 that should be a reminder to us each and every day of who is on our side what then shall we say to these things paul says if god is for us who can be against us and we could add to that not only who can be against us but what can be against us and he kind of goes on to explain a little bit of that if god is for us we have every reason to be optimistic and you know there's various things that we could look at that should engender that optimism in our lives as we seek to live for god they're very simple Fundamental matters. First of all, I would say that God's plan should give us an optimistic perspective. One of the reasons why pessimism reigns, of course, we mentioned the main reason is sin, but one of the reasons is that time and chance happen to them all. This is something that Solomon noted in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11. He said, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. He continues, But time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. We understand that there is very much an explanation of suffering and of those negative things that occur to every man with sin. But there are other things that happen which really can't be explained, at least on a deep level, which we seek answers for. And really, the only explanation is things just happen. Bad things happen. Time and chance are a reality. People pass on. People have illnesses fall upon them. People lose jobs. People come across accidents. Whatever it may be, things happen that are negative because sin reigns in this world and we live in an imperfect world. But here's the encouraging matter. That time and chance happen to them all, but God's plan is outside of time and chance. And that's explained in various ways in Scripture. One of the things that we can be encouraged by is the description Paul gives by inspiration in Ephesians 3 and verse 11, as he describes the mystery of God in Christ as an eternal purpose. That word eternal, it takes our minds outside of time and chance. Eternity is without beginning and without end. Time started in Genesis 1-1, and... Paul, through inspiration, says God's plan was way before that and it will be way after that. And we take comfort from that because if God's plan is outside of time and chance and it indeed was devised by one who transcends time and chance as the eternal God, then it is a plan that will not be affected by time and chance. One way that it is put in Job 42 and verse 2, is that there is no purpose of God's that can be withheld from him. Job said, I know you can do everything. There's not one thing that can be withheld from you. If you desire for it to be done, it will be done. And that's God's plan. This is why the Proverbs tell us that we can trust in God's plan. Jeremiah 10 verse 23 says "The." way of man is not in himself. It is not a man who walks to direct his own steps. But this is what wisdom tells us in Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. That means that you can, in following God's plan for you, trust. Be optimistic about it. Know that if you're following this plan, it will indeed pan out for the good. Secondly, and very closely related to God's plan giving us optimism, is Jesus carrying out that plan. His death and also His resurrection should be overwhelming power in our lives as we view it through a positive lens. In Ephesians 3 and verse 11, it says that God's plan is an eternal purpose, but He also says that He accomplished it. Past tense, He accomplished it. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can rest assured, especially as we lay our heads down at night, knowing that Christ's sacrifice happened, His resurrection happened, and therefore that crown of righteousness which we look forward to is secure if we are in Christ and His security. That gives us optimism, and we should always remember that. In Romans the 8th chapter, the Apostle Paul describes why this plan or this, this purpose of God's in eternity was accomplished in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul said that what the law, that is the old law, could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit, we remember that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And one of the ways in which it was a tutor is that it can find all under sin. The righteous requirement of the law, I believe, is twofold and very intimately related in those two facets. That one, in order to be righteous under the law, you had to be perfect. Perfect. If you sin one time under the old law, there is no sacrifice under the old law that takes those sins away. That was Paul's dilemma in Romans chapter 7 as he looked to his past self before Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says, who can deliver me from this body of death? Well, thank God through Christ is what he says. The righteous requirement of the law is that in order to be righteous, to be right before God, you had to keep the law perfectly. But another righteous requirement of the law is that if you did indeed break the law, God's righteousness, his justice required death in that person. There had to be a death. And that's why that sacrificial system prepared us for Christ. Someone had to die. If we're going to go to heaven, someone has to die. Now, the only one that can actually take our place is Christ. And we understand that. This is what Paul is saying. It was accomplished in Christ. And he said by that sacrifice he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin not only by being the sacrifice that takes sin away, but the reason why his sacrifice could take sin away is because he did not sin in his life and therefore condemned sin. He showed that sin was wrong. And not only that sin was wrong, but you can live without sinning. You, you can decide I'm not going to sin. Not that we're going to be perfect. We know Romans 3:23 tells us that all of sin falls short of the glory of God, but what Christ showed us is that there is a way to live and not sin. And in that way, he showed that sin has no power over us through him. That is, he condemned sin in the flesh. Certainly, we can be optimistic about our walk with Christ because of his death, but also his resurrection. That's noted in Romans, the fifth chapter in verse 10, when Paul says, if when we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We know from first Corinthians 15, how necessary Christ's resurrection was. Yes, he was perfect, sinless. He willingly went to the cross, but what if he did not overcome death? That shows that not only is the apostles' preaching fraudulent, but he was a fraud, and that's why their preaching is fraudulent. This is what Paul noted in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 12 through 19. And if their preaching is fraudulent, then the faith that is brought about by the word of God they preach is also futile. It is faith in something that is not true. And if your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And not only that, he points out that the resurrection of Christ is so important because those who had passed on before, they had fallen asleep. They had died in Christ. And, and we have hope in Christ when we, when we die. Those also have perished and they uh, have no hope. They have no comfort. And we are of all men, he says, the most pitiful. Yes, we have confidence and optimism reigns through the death of Christ, but how much more so? As Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I would say thirdly that a reason for our optimism in our spiritual walk, one was the plan of God, two was the carrying out of God's plan, and three is the Holy Spirit's revelation of God's plan. And we often look at the Trinity, the Godhead, in this way that god devised the plan jesus carried out the plan and the holy spirit revealed the plan and that is very much the case and through all of those works we have optimism romans the eighth chapter once again in verse two mentions the spirit's work when paul says that the law of the spirit and of life in christ jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death see we have all of these intertwined inseparably one thing without the other is insufficient But God's work, the Son's work, and the Holy Spirit's work all have to be in tandem and have to work in unison. It is still in Christ Jesus, he says, that we're made free from the law of sin and death, but it is the law of the Spirit of life that brings us into the benefits of the death of Christ. And that law of the Spirit is the gospel of Christ, and we go back in context to Romans 1 and verse 16, and that's exactly what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That law of the Spirit of life, it puts us into Christ and makes us free from the law of sin and death. How optimistic should we be? But not only in initial salvation, but just like we're saved through Christ's death and we're also saved by His life and His resurrection, so as we're saved by the initial obedience to the Word, we're continually protected and uplifted and saved as the Spirit dwells in us through the Word. In Romans 8 and verse 10, it says that if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. We could say, or on account of sin, or when sin is considered. It's not used for sin anymore. But the Spirit, that is our Spirit, is life because of righteousness. We're made righteous, but notice this. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He's saying that because you have been justified in Christ Jesus by the law of the Spirit of life and been freed from the law of sin and death, your body is dead to sin. It's not used in that way anymore. But if it's dead to sin, it's got to be made alive for something else. And He says the Spirit dwells in you to make that happen. And it's not by any miraculous way. It's by our submission to and giving ourselves over to the word of God. We see a picture painted of that in the sixth chapter of Romans and in verse 12, when Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. It's the body we have now, not our eternal body to come, but our mortal body now. Don't let it reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you're not under law, but under grace. That's a not-but construction. We're under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But he says you're not under law simply. You're under grace. We have the forgiveness through Christ's death and resurrection ultimately applied through our submission to God's law that is revealed by the Spirit. Those three things, and we could... Talk about so many different details concerning them, but those three things simply Should engender optimism in the life of a christian when we think about what god calls us to As christians the spiritual path that we're following down there are times when we Struggle with pessimism. I just can't do it. It's just not going to work for me I'm different from these people. I'm different from this person. I can't be what god is calling me to be but these three things should give us optimism about fulfilling and being the person that God calls us to be. There are three things that I want to consider we need to be optimistic about. And because of those three things we just looked at, we can be optimistic about them. Firstly, we need to be optimistic about our spiritual growth. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in the first three verses, like we see in so many places in the New Testament, we're called to growth. He says, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We understand the infant's intense craving for the mother's milk. It is an absolute necessity, but not only is it just an absolute necessity for that infant, that infant craves it That infant wants the mother's milk, longs for it, has a taste for it, because that infant tastes it and knows that it's good. And that's why the babies cry. They want to be fed. And by inspiration, Peter's telling us, look at that picture and understand how necessary it is for that baby, but also how much that baby wants it. And you, if you have tasted indeed that God's word is gracious, you've you've received the spiritual nutrition from it, you've received forgiveness. In Hebrews 6, it talks about how we've been enlightened and we've been refreshed by God's word. If indeed you are in that capacity, then continue to strive for it so you can grow. You have to grow. We've made the point before that we saw a baby that never grew. They weren't gaining weight like they should be gaining weight. They were not in the percentile they should be of their growth and progression. We worry about them, and we take them to a pediatrician. We ask what's wrong. We run tests. We make sure that they start growing like they're supposed to grow. How much more so we as Christians? If we're not growing, something's wrong. But the thing is, because God commands us to grow, and He's given us the factors which cause our growth, we can be optimistic about it. Some people are so pessimistic about their growth in Christ. I know that God calls me to grow, but I don't think that I can grow. But what's the true problem? Is it something in your life? Is it resources? Do we not have the resources to grow in Christ? Do we not have help to grow in Christ? We have Christ, we have God, we have the Holy Spirit, we have each other. Is it time? Sometimes we try to fool ourselves that we just don't have time to grow. If we don't have time to grow, then we're spending too much time on other things. There's always room for more time in god's word what's the problem i think it's pessimism all too often that we're told to grow we hear sermons about growth we read about the need for growth in the scriptures we read articles about growth we encourage each other to grow and the reason why so many don't grow is either one they just don't care or two they're too negative about it they're too pessimistic about it maybe someone's become a christian but they became a Christian too late in life. They've got a lot of things that are, are just set in. They're set in their ways. And, and they think, I've just, it's, I've waited too long. I came a Christian too late in life. I can't grow like I could have if I obeyed the gospel at an earlier age. Maybe they look at their past life and think, there is absolutely no way I could be a good Christian, a mature Christian, a very knowledgeable and righteous individual because of my past negative, sinful life. Think about Paul and how terrible of a person he was persecuting the church. Some, because of their past life in sin, have sullied their reputation. And none of their friends they had in the past, none of the people that knew them, their family they had in the past with regard to their sinfulness when they walked in sin, will ever believe that they could ever change. And because of that, they buy into that thought. And they don't think that they can grow in Christ. Maybe we think that we just can't fill the shoes of the spiritual giants that are before us. Grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, big brother, big sister, cousins, aunts, uncles, just one of the elders in the church or one of the older people in the church. And we see their faith, and we know we're called to growth as well, and they had to go through that growth, but those shoes are too big to fill. That's pessimism. And sometimes we try to hide behind pessimism as if it's a... a, kind of humility but that's not humility again as God looked at the Israelites it's a display of a lack of faith you know the biggest thing that's in our way is ourselves as we often say is our own attitude and it's similar to what we read about with the Corinthians and the relationship with Paul in Second Corinthians 6 and verse 12, we remember the context of Second Corinthians where there were false apostles in their midst. They were putting up with them and they were speaking all kinds of bad about Paul in chapter 10. They said that his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. They're trying to turn them away from the apostle who was their spiritual father as he established the church in Corinth by the preaching of God's word. And and Paul's trying to regain that relationship because if they reject the apostle and the truth he's bringing and accept these false apostles and the error they're bringing, then in reality they're rejecting God, just like um, Samuel was told that they have not rejected you they have rejected me as their king. And this is what Paul said. You are not restricted by us. It's not our problem. The problem's not on our end. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections or inward parts. That is, what is inside of you, your thoughts, your feelings toward me are the restriction. And when we think about that in regard to our need for growth, most times I think the reason why a person cannot grow in Christ is because of their inward parts, their affections. I don't feel like I can do it. It's pessimism and a lack of faith. Paul encourages us to be diligent in our growth and look to the aiding of our Father. In Philippians 2, and verse 12, he says, Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he doesn't just say do that alone, but... That it is God who works in you both willing to do for his good pleasure. Remember, his plan is outside of time and chance. He's outside of time and chance. His plan for us is to grow in Christ, which means that since he's working in us through the word, we can do it. Be optimistic about it. And he goes on to explain how that looks. Do all things without complaining and disputing. I just can't do it. It's too hard for me. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. I'm not as good as these people or whatever it may be. That's pessimism. It's complaining, it's disputing, it's, it's telling God, even though you tell me I can and must grow, I can't do it. That's disputing, that's complaining, it's replying against God. He says, don't do it. Your calling is to be a blameless and harmless child of God without fault in the midst of a, perverse and, a pervert, crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And he says this, hold fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labor in vain. Don't complain, don't dispute. Be optimistic about it. Hold fast God's word. And we have this comfort. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is God who works in you, and he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Those superlatives are laced throughout Scripture to give us an optimistic attitude toward our spiritual growth, our walk in Christ. Secondly, and related to that, we need to be optimistic about winning our battles with temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, it says that all temptation is common to man. There's nothing about sin and any specific sin or temptation that is not common to man. And we need to realize that. It's something we're not going to be able to escape, not temptation. We can escape the sin to which it leads. We can decide not to yield to it, but temptation is a present and ongoing, everlasting reality so long as we are on this earth. Temptation won't be in the place where righteousness dwells, but until we get there, temptation is the truth. Remember in Ecclesiastes 7.29, man was made upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we fail from time to time when we're tempted is the pessimism that comes with error about sin and the nature of man. We begin to think as we're inundated with error throughout this world religiously that we cannot overcome temptation. But remember, Solomon said that God made man upright. It's not that sin is ingrained within their nature. They were born sinless. They were born in God's image, righteous, pure. But then they sought out many schemes. That is, they ran to temptation and sin. We've got to realize that that doctrine about the depravity of man is... False in every sense of the word. Remember in Romans 8 and verse 3 that it said that God accomplished the righteous requirement of the law in Jesus by sending Him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Those who teach that error of the depravity inherently of man's nature view that as if in the flesh inherently is sin, it's sinful flesh. But if it's sinful flesh and Jesus was sent in that sinful flesh then Jesus had sinned. But we know that In Hebrews 4, it says that he was without sin. In Hebrews 7, it says that he was without sin. Throughout the entire New Testament, it says that he is without sin. Sinful flesh is simply a description of flesh as it leads to sin often. All of sin will fall short of the glory of God, and that's because there are passions and urges and longings in human flesh that often lead to sin, but it only leads to sin when it is unchecked by the Word of God. And that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. He says you're going to have these urges, but what you should do instead is listen to the Spirit's revelation so that you don't do those things you wish. When we sin, it's not because we're born that way. It's not because it's impossible for us to overcome temptation it's because we give in to temptation in first john chapter 3 and verses 7 through 9 we read about our true nature as christians the apostle says little children let no one deceive you he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous and he who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning and for this purpose the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil And whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. He started off the chapter saying, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. He's optimistic. He's positive about this. And he says, if you are a child of God and you are living like a child of God, you are following your spiritual father and his seed, the word of God is remaining in you. You won't sin. When you always in the face of temptation give place to God's word instead of the devil's lure, you will come at it righteous. But we've got to have that optimism and belief that we are equipped to overcome that temptation. In first Peter chapter one and verse thirteen, the apostle says that we are to gird up the loins of our mind and be sober and rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the form of lust, but be holy as He who called you is holy, for He said, be holy for I am holy. That idea of girding up the loins of our mind is is like cinching up those free-flowing robes that they wore during that time and culture. When they went to work, they had to gird them up so it doesn't hinder their, their movement. They had to have free movement to do their work. And he says, gird up the loins of your mind. And some of the ways in which we do that is not accepting this notion that we just have to sin because it's ingrained in our nature. There are brethren who believe this. We've got to beware lest we buy into that false doctrine. We've got to understand that God has called us to holiness. And if He's called us to holiness, then you had better believe that we can indeed be holy. And He's prepared us to be able to win that battle of temptation. In Matthew 26 and verse 41, in the Garden of Gethsemane, three apostles were with Jesus. And He asked them to wait for Him. And He came upon them, and they were sleeping after He had been praying all this time. And He said, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, we have a willing spirit But our flesh is weak. It's it's called sinful flesh in Romans 8 and verse 3. And that's not because it's inherently sinful, but it's because the passions and the urges often lead to sin if they are not checked by God's Word. We want to live righteously, but temptation always is knocking at the door. Sin is always there. And His solution to it is to watch and pray. And He says, lest you enter into temptation. He's not saying that lest you are tempted, lest you. You go to temptation. because Temptation's coming. This is the hour of Jesus' glorification and the death on the cross, and He says that they're going to forsake Him. He knows they're going to be tempted. That's inevitable. He's not saying watch and pray so that temptation never comes. He's saying watch and pray so that when temptation comes, you don't open the door and go into it. That's sin. That's yielding. We've got to be optimistic about this, that we can indeed refuse that knock on the door we can refuse to open it to sin prayer sets our mind on god and it helps us focus on the spiritual and it accesses god's powerful provisions as it pertains to overcoming temptation we see that in first Corinthians 10 and verse 13 that no temptation has overtaken us except such as common to man but god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted Beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And the way we find that escape, we acknowledge that escape, we take advantage of that escape, and we can optimistically view temptation as something we can overcome is by watching and praying. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 13 says that we're to pray without ceasing. It's supposed to be a constant thing always being watchful, looking for temptation so that when it comes we can reject it and looking for the way of escape so that when it comes we can accept it and praying to God for the strength to do so and His providence to provide us a way out. Thirdly and lastly, as we are optimistic about our growth in Christ included in that, optimistic about overcoming temptation, we are optimistic about reaching that goal of heaven. That's something I think that especially babes in Christ struggle with is the balance between knowing that the scriptures very clearly and plainly teach that not all will make it to heaven. In fact, the majority won't make it to heaven. There will be more people in anguish and hellfire than there will be in peace and comfort in heaven with God. It is an absolute certainty that the majority will not make it to heaven Wide is the way which leads to hell. Many going by it. Narrow is the way which leads to heaven. There are a few who go in by it. Matthew 7 and verses 13 and 14. And we've got to be able to understand that that is true and still have confidence that we're going to be of the few. We have confidence because of all that we've talked about up to this point. We have confidence. and We're optimistic about it because God has given us everything that we need to be optimistic about it. Titus 1 and verses 1 through 3 in Paul's introduction he says that he is a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this letter is according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Firstly God can't lie if he promised it It is absolutely going to happen. But not only that, he says this is according to the faith of God's elect. We're elect in Christ to receive this. If we're in Christ, we are of those who were predestined before time began that will receive that prize. And it's not an individual thing where we can go out in the world and sin. And because we're elect, we're going to be saved. That's not the case. We stay in Christ, living faithfully. And if we are in Christ, because God cannot lie, we will receive that eternal life. And we stay in that by the preaching of the word and the submission to the word, the submission to the commandment of God. All of that plays into this optimism about making it to heaven. In Hebrews 6 and verse 13, this idea of God's promise where he cannot lie is elaborated upon. A scripture we're familiar with, with Abraham being promised and God swearing that surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And he patiently endured and obtained the promise. And this is why, because God had made that promise and swore by an oath. And for men, that's an end of all dispute. God's trying to engender in Abraham optimism about this, confidence about the promise of God. He was determining, verse 17, to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. So he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge So lay hold of the hope set before us. Not only that, though, he says that hope we have is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. It enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We have God's immutable counsel. He can't lie, it will happen. And he has given us further confidence by Jesus coming and then going beyond the veil, securing the place for us. He's given us a high priest who has done it who he can follow, and we can get there where he is. He's provided ample matters to engender optimism in us. In Second Peter chapter 1, he speaks of our need for growth again, and we can be optimistic about that, but as we do grow adding to our faith, he says in verse 10 that after you add these things, you make your call and election sure. There are things we're sure about and we're so confident in. And sometimes even those fall through. This is not one of those things. He says, if you're doing this, your call and election to heaven will be sure. And you will never stumble if you do these things. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, it would have been enough for Peter by inspiration to write that so an entrance will be supplied to you into the everlasting kingdom. He didn't say that. He didn't say that any more than Paul in Ephesians 3 said that God is able to do exceedingly or God is able to do abundantly all that we ask and think. He said God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask and think. And Peter didn't just say it'll be supplied to you. He said it'll be abundantly supplied to you. And we should have confidence in that. You know, there is no humility in saying, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven. There's no humility in that. If we can't say, I have utmost confidence that I'm going to heaven, something's wrong that we need to fix. God has said, I want you to be optimistic about it. I call you to optimism. I wouldn't have sent my son if you couldn't be confident about this. And if you put in the work, if you remain faithful, certainly you'll make it. Along the lines of what we read in Hebrews 6 about Jesus as the high priest, and we mentioned it this morning, we look unto him, Hebrews 12, 2, As the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the same, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He calls Him not only the author or the originator of our faith, but the finisher of our faith. Another scripture we looked at this morning was 1 Peter 1 and 9. If He finishes our faith, that means we reach the end of our faith. And 1 Peter 1 and verse 9 says the end of our faith is salvation. That's what He's saying. As you look to Jesus, He can finish your faith. Not only can he finish your faith, he will finish your faith. Thus we have optimism as a Christian. Second Peter one and verse twelve, or Timothy, second Timothy one and verse twelve, we see Paul's confidence. He said, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He committed his entire life to the service of Christ. And he says, because he's all-powerful, because his death is sufficient, because God's power can bring me through, because he can finish my faith, I know he's able to keep my life that I've committed to him. And when the judgment day comes, that day of reckoning, it will be for Paul and can be for us the day of salvation. Certainly, we need to be optimistic about these things and many more that we could talk about. Optimism must be the characteristic of a Christian. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4.4, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says, rejoice. That's a matter of positivity in our lives. Certainly negative will come, but even optimism can reign when negative is present. It can be overcome by the prospect of eternity in heaven and by the power of God that is offered in His Word. We need to have that positive outlook on life Never forgetting the negative that can and will come. The devil is relentless, but always remembering that we can. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's about optimism. And it's not optimism that is placed in a naive attitude, but it is optimism that is placed in the all-powerful, perfect God and His Son and the Holy Spirit working in us through the Word. We need to be optimistic as Christians. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel of Christ, we want to offer you that ability to be sure that you'll be in heaven. You do that by becoming a Christian, being baptized in the water of baptism that was commanded by Christ, coming into contact with his blood and having the forgiveness of sins. And you can rise up to walk in newness of life. If you have obeyed the gospel, but you've fallen short in some sense or, way, or fashion, and we can assist you tonight in a spiritual way, We invite you to come forward as well as we stand and sing the song that was selected.